0: now will you turn back to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15. No, I'm kidding, 16. <laughs> Some of you are doing the math. I got to the end of chapter 15 last week, plus one verse, that would be chapter 16. John chapter 16, I'm going to read together verses 1 through 4. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcast from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we every time we come to your word, we know and confess that we have no faculty in ourselves, no inborn faculty to understand your word or to obey it. We are in need of the illuminating work of the Spirit of God, that he would be our teacher. And we are in need of your grace to understand your word, and even the difficult passages, especially the difficult passages where we need grace to not only understand, but also to obey and to take these things to heart. And so we pray for your assistance during this time, and that you would incline our hearts to your word, and may we delight in your word, all aspects of it, even the difficult things, and may we delight in it so that you might be glorified in our response, our humble obedience to your word. We thank you, O God of truth, for giving us your word and for speaking to us truthfully. And now help us to understand the truth, we pray, through the Spirit of truth. In Christ's name, amen. We've been speaking in recent weeks about the uh, suffering, the hatred that the world has for Christians, the hatred the world has for the truth, for the God of truth, for the gospel of truth, for the one who is truth incarnate, and of course the hatred that the world has for those who represent the truth, namely Christians. And it brings me no joy at all to, to preach on passages like this, it's not like, I've been waiting since the beginning of John to get to the part where we talk about Christians being persecuted. But if we're going to tackle the full counsel of God, then we have to admit that there are things even in the difficult-to-hear passages that should cause us to search our hearts and to do some examination of ourselves in the light of truth. And these things are given to us for our edification, for our sanctification, and for our growth. And so we're going to uh, tackle them in that way and with that intention. So speaking on the subject of the world's hatred for us, We have been looking at chapter 15, verse 18, this extended section where we are told the reasons for the world's hatred. We're told why the world hates us. We're told that the world hates us and that it is without cause. It's unjustified. It's irrational. The world has no legitimate or real reason to hate the truth or to hate Christians. But it is an evidence of the fact that those who are in darkness hate the light and they love the darkness. And so they attack anything that is the light. But we, up until this point, have not had any description of exactly what that persecution is going to look like. It's it's kind of been described generally. The world is going to hate you, and it's going to hate you without cause. And here are all the reasons it's going to hate you, and it's going to hate you because it hated me. We've been told all of that by Jesus in John chapter 15. But up until this point, nothing specific. What is that hatred going to look like? When it hits us, what form is it going to come in? Well, now we get some specifics. For instance, in verse 2, they will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. Now, these are the specifics. And that's not very encouraging, is it? It make you outcast from the synagogue, and there's going to come a time when those who kill you will think that they are doing so in obedience to God. Those might be discouraging words, but remember, Jesus' intention here is not to discourage the disciples. Their hearts were already vexed. He told them in chapter 14, verse 1, don't let your heart be troubled. Chapter 14, verse 27, don't let your heart be troubled. He knows that they were already anxious because he has told them that he is leaving them. And so he is not intending to, to shake their faith. In fact, his intention is the exact opposite. In giving them the specifics of this bad news, his intention is to strengthen their hearts and to strengthen their faith so that when these things come to pass, they will not be shaken and they will not be troubled. And so in this passage, these four verses, Jesus gives to us, the reasons why he has been warning us of the world's hatred and the persecution that is to come. He gives us the reason for the warnings and then the warning itself. The warning itself is in verses 2 to 3, and the reason for the warnings is in verses 1 and verse 4. So you kind of have a a warning sandwich. Verses 1 and 4, the reasons why he's telling us this, and then verses 2 and 3, the actual warning itself. So we're going to look at it in that order. First, the reasons for the warning and then the warning itself. And I just remind you of the the whole structure of this context, remember that he has talked about the hatred of the world, and then he talks to them about the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whose role it is to help them to testify in the face of the world's hatred. And now he is back talking again about the hatred of the world. And beginning next week in chapter 5, he's going to return back to the subject. Sorry, chapter 5, verse 5, chapter 16. He's going to return back to the subject of the Helper, who convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. So he is weaving together these two great themes. The hatred of the world for the truth and the helper who is the Holy Spirit who comes in to assist us in standing for the truth in the face of that hatred and to assist us in testifying to the truth, even though that is the very thing that the world hates. So let's look at the reasons for the hatred beginning in verse 1. Look at verse 1 and verse 4. And the first reason is because in verse 1, these things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. The very first reason is to protect them, to protect them. There are going to be three of them in verses 1 to 4, to protect them, to strengthen them and to prepare them for what is to come. The first one is to protect them. These things, these things, you'll notice that's repeated. It's stated four times in these four verses. It's stated once in verse 1, once in verse 3, and twice in verse 4. And that these things, of those four times, three times it's used to speak of the words that Jesus was telling them one time in verse 3 of the things that the persecutors will do. So as Jesus is describing these things, he's telling them, there's a reason why I'm telling you specifically these things that are to come. He is telling us these things so that they would not stumble or so that we would not stumble. And that is to protect them from a snare. And the word stumble there is the word scandalizo. And it sounds like our English word scandal, doesn't it? Now, I couldn't find any connection between our English word scandal and that ancient Greek word scandalizo, the verb scandalizo. There may be a connection there. If there is, I couldn't, I couldn't find it. But the ideas are similar. The sounding is similar and the ideas are similar. The word scandalizo was a word that was used of somebody being caught in a trap, having something close in around them. And it was used to describe, in a literal sense, it was used to describe a bait stick, something you would put in a trap to lure somebody into the trap so that they would be caught in it. Figuratively, it is used as here to describe being caught in something unawares, to stumble into something and to suddenly realize you've been trapped by something. That's the word scandalizo. And it always had the idea of being caught suddenly, unaware. You didn't see it coming. And so as Jesus is telling them the disciples these things, he is saying, I'm telling you these things so that you might not be caught in this trap. What trap? I'll explain the trap to you in just a second. But the purpose of him telling them these things and thus telling us these things is so that we might not stumble into the very thing that would cause our undoing, that we might not be caught in the trap. And the trap is the trap of of false expectations. I think that's exactly what Jesus is describing. I don't want you to stumble into this. You see, if you expect that by following me in the days and weeks and months ahead, that this is going to mean your peace and your prosperity, and your ease, and your comfort. And then when tribulation, and trials, and difficulties, and persecution comes, guess what happens? All of a sudden, we are overcome by doubt, and disillusionment, and despair. Why? Because our false expectations have not been met. And even at this moment, the disciples had all kinds of false expectations. They had just less than a week earlier from this night, they had walked into the city of Jerusalem with Jesus, riding on a donkey, to the singing of the crowd, singing, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the Son of David and the crowd was hailing him and and ushering him in as the rightful king to David's throne, the disciples at this moment did not expect that within 24 hours they would be laying their master in a tomb. They didn't expect that. They didn't expect opposition from the world. They expected the overthrow of the world. They were following somebody that they believed to be the son of David, the one who would establish the long-awaited messianic Davidic kingdom. And for the disciples, as those who were closest to him, this would mean not tribulation and trials and persecution. For the disciples, this would mean comfort and ease and prosperity and peace. This would be the good life. That's what these disciples were expecting. And Jesus is telling them he knows what their expectations is and he is warning them of what is to come so that they might not all of a sudden find themselves in this persecution and say, Oh, we didn't see this coming. Maybe he's not the right one. Maybe he's not the Messiah. And when you when you stumble into when when your false expectations are not met, and they are not they are not fulfilled, that can cause doubt and disillusionment and despair and the questioning of your faith. Jesus is protecting them from that trap. He is laying the trap bare, as it were. He is removing the bait. He is removing anything that might cause them later on to be caught up in those false expectations and thus to be uh, to be swarmed by doubt as to the reality of their faith. And by doing that, he is protecting them. He's, he's providing for them an, an out, as it were, that they would not be caught into, caught up in that trap of false expectations and have their faith squashed and suddenly find that, hey, what I was promised did not come to pass. But this, by the way, is the danger of presenting to people false, a false gospel, a gospel that promises good times and that everything will get better and that your marriage will get better and your wife will get better and your kids will get better and your job will be better and you'll find yourself in better health and everything will go swimmingly. Look, like when you promise people, Uh, rainbows and and lollipops and good times and singing and dancing leprechauns and, and flying unicorns and all of the good stuff that comes. And then when those expectations are not met, what happens? People start to fall away from the faith. It doesn't do anybody any good to soft sell the gospel message and to withhold from people the hard demands of the gospel, that this is the reality of what we are to face. Because when you promise everybody the false expectations of good times and a carefree life, when you come to Christ, everything will get better. Then when that doesn't happen and they're met with the promised trials, tribulations, and temptations, and that instead happens, guess what happens? They're caught in a trap, and they are suddenly swept in by a doubt and disillusionment and all that stuff because now their expectations have not been met. And so Jesus is telling them this so that they might not fall into that. And he is saying to them, look at verse 1, these things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. He's preserving them, preserving them from that trap. And he's laying out for them. He's being honest with them. This is what you are to expect. If you're going to follow me, you are to expect this. Now, the second thing he's doing, he's strengthening them. And for this, we must go down to verse 4. But these things I have spoken to you, so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. This is strengthening them. Uh, the, these things in verse 4 applies to the same these things as in verse 1. He is referring to all of the promises that he has given to them the promise of the world's hatred and why the world's hatred. He's telling them all of that. He's telling them about the promised helper, the Holy Spirit, who will come in them and be with them forever and help them testify and stand in the face of that hostility. All of these things he is telling them so that he might strengthen them so that when their hour comes, not the disciples, but the they refers to the persecutors, when their hour arrives, that those persecutors, the disciples might then realize that Jesus had told them these things and remember that this is happening exactly as the Lord promised that this would happen. Now, notice the reference to their hour. It's not accidental, and it's not insignificant, especially in John's Gospel. Because as we have seen in John's Gospel, John uses that phrase, this hour, or the hour, or his hour, to describe specifically the divinely appointed time of Jesus' suffering, his passion, or the divinely appointed time of certain redemptive events. The divinely appointed time of Jesus' suffering, or the divinely appointed time of certain redemptive events. And this is how John uses this throughout the gospel. Let me give you some examples of redemptive events, for instance. Back in John chapter 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. John chapter 5, verse 28, do not marvel at this. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. You hear the reference there to the hour. An appointed time is coming for this redemptive event for the dead to hear the voice of the Son of God and to live for the resurrection. It's also used in John's Gospel of Jesus' appointed time, divinely appointed time, for suffering. We saw this back in chapter 7 and 8. Do you remember when Jesus went up to the Feast of Booths, and there were all of those attempts by the religious leaders to persecute him and to kill him, and they kept trying to seize him. They tried to seize him in the temple. They tried to seize him in the streets. They tried to lay hands on him constantly. Do you remember what John kept saying? His hour was not yet. All of the attempts of the Jewish leaders to seize Jesus and arrest him, to execute him and to kill him, but the time was not yet. In other words, John is saying to us that Jesus is sovereign over the timing of the events of his passion and of his death, and that that hour, that divinely appointed time, had not yet arrived. And that's how Jesus describes even the timing of his own death. In John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. you hear it? The hour, the time, the divinely appointed moment has arrived for the Son of Man to be glorified. John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus said, My soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. And even John introduces these final minutes that Jesus had with the disciples in the upper room, back in chapter 13, verse 1, by writing this, Now before the there, before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come. So what then does John mean, and what does Jesus mean by saying, when their hour has come? When the persecutor's hour has come? What does he use? By using that phrase, what is he trying to remind them of? He is trying to remind us of this, that even the hour of the persecutors, their hour of triumph, their time of persecuting the church, it is divinely appointed, and it happens exactly on God's timetable, just like the death of Christ, just like everything else over which Christ is sovereign. He is sovereign over the hour of His people's suffering, just as He is sovereign over the hour of His own suffering. Nothing is outside of His control. It's It's not circumstances, it's not chance, it's not just how it happened to happen. It is that He is sovereign over this. He rules in the affairs of men, and since He rules in the affairs of men, even the timing, the very minute of persecution, when it begins and when it ends, is according to His sovereign plan. Do you understand that the one that we pray for regularly, Saeed Abedini, who's languishing in Iranian prison right now. I mentioned him a couple weeks ago. Do you understand that the timing of his imprisonment and the timing of his release is all under the sovereign hand of God? Do you understand that that is appointed? That is his hour? All of this is unfolding on a divine timetable. God's sovereign over all of it. And just the reference to the timing of the persecutor, it is Jesus' way of saying, look, your hour, my hour, none of this is outside of his control. Their hour will come, and it reminds us that all of this is unfolding on a divine timetable. Persecution, if it comes to this nation in any form, it will not come one minute early, and will not come one minute late, and it will not last one minute longer than it absolutely has to for God to accomplish his purposes in his church for his people and for the glory of his name. Not one moment. It's all unfolding on a divine timetable. Does that mean that we should pursue it or seek it or try to speed it up? No. Does it mean we need to run from it? Not necessarily. Does it mean that we should be excited about it? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that. But it does mean that we we can do this. We can rest in the sovereign hand of God and understanding that he's in control of all of us. We need not worry. We need not panic. Just as Jesus had an hour, we have an hour. They have an hour. Everybody has an hour. It's all all according to plan. So just relax. Uh, The hour of our suffering is no less under his control than the hour of his own suffering. He is sovereign over all of that. So he, these things He has told us, to strengthen them so that when that hour comes, when that time comes, we may remember that He has told us these things. This is the third time that evening that Jesus said something of this nature to the disciples. When He says to them in verse 4, These things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. When this happens, you may remember that I told you of what was to unfold and what was to happen. Back in chapter 13, Jesus said in verse 19, From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. John chapter 14, verse 29, Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. It's the same intention here. I've told these things to you so that when it happens, you may believe. You may be strengthened. We may sit back and say, this is exactly what the Lord promised. So we're not going to worry about it. What's to worry about? What is unfolding is exactly what the Lord said would unfold. And so it's He is sovereign over all of it, and He has warned us ahead of time so that we might be strengthened in our faith. And when it happens, we see His Word being fulfilled. That strengthens our faith, not weakens our faith, because we understand that He knew ahead of time exactly what He has appointed for His people. So we are strengthened by it. And third, to prepare them. Not only to protect them and to strengthen them, but to prepare them. He's preparing them. Look at the end of verse 4. These things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. these things, again, is a reference to all the promises, the promise of the helper, the promise of the hatred, the promise of the persecution, verses 2 and 3. These things, he did not speak to them at the beginning because he was with them. What does he mean by that? He was with them. Leon Morris, in his commentary, says this. His presence in the flesh had meant that he could give them guidance day by day, and it also meant that the venom of the enemy would be directed against him rather than them. While the master was with them, the disciples were a negligible quantity in the eyes of their opponents, But the removal of the master would transform the situation. Now the hostility would be directed at them. End quote. What is Morris saying? Jesus was with them from the beginning, and there was no need to explain to them all of the detail that he has given to them up until now. Because up until this moment, up until this time in the text, all of the hatred and hostility of the world had been directed at Jesus. The disciples were were small fries in the large scheme of things. All of the hatred and hostility, Jesus had borne the brunt of that. But now he was leaving. And so guess who would bear the brunt of the world's hatred and hostility now? The disciples. And guess now that they're gone, guess who bears the brunt of the hatred and the hostility of the world? It's us. We're next in line. Congratulations, everybody. That is your door prize for today. You became a Christian. That's what you get. You get the same thing the disciples got. You get the same thing the church fathers got. You get the same thing the reformers get. That is what is allotted to us. That is what we are called to. And that's what we should expect. And by warning him, the disciples of this, he is He is preparing, he is protecting them. He is strengthening them and He is preparing them for what was to come. Now let's look second of all at the warning itself in verses 2 and 3. They will make you outcast from the synagogue but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. What is interesting about this passage is that and and this is what we should notice. There are two things. There are two, two, two expressions of persecution. Being outcast from the synagogue And second, being killed in the name of God. Outcast from the synagogue, being killed in the name of God. What is interesting about that is that this is not, what Jesus has in mind here, is not persecution from a secular state. Did you realize that? We might expect atheists and agnostics and your run-of-the-mill pagans to hate Christians and to persecute us, but Jesus is not describing persecution from a secular state. We've seen examples, even in recent years, of secular states, godless states, persecuting Christians. We saw it under the Darwinian Nazi regime where they persecuted the true church as they gobbled up false churches and fake believers and liberal churches. We saw it under the godless atheism and Marxism in the Soviet Union as they killed millions of people in order to cleanse the entire nation of Christianity. We have seen Christians persecuted by secular, godless states. But what Jesus is describing here is not persecution by a secular state, but persecution by religious people. They will expel you from the synagogues and they will think that in killing you, They're offering service to God. Now, it's one thing to suffer persecution at the hands of atheists and agnostics whom we would expect to hate us. But it is quite something else when the world that persecutes you is people who name the name of God and do so in the name of religion. So let's look at these two examples, two expressions of persecution. First, they will expel you from the synagogue or they will literally unsynagogue you. They will kick you out of the synagogue. It's difficult for us in our context to appreciate what this would mean for a Jew. But in the Jewish world, in their world, the synagogue was the center of everything. It was their social life. It was their cultural life. It was their religious life. The synagogue was the center of everything. To be cut off from the synagogue, to be kicked off out of the synagogue, was not like being kicked out of a church today. You get kicked out of a church today, you walk two blocks and you go into another church and they welcome you with open arms. It wasn't that way in the synagogue. In the synagogue, if you got cut off from the synagogue, kicked out of the synagogue, you would lose your job. You would lose your family. You would be excommunicated. It was as if you were being cut off from the covenant itself. You would lose all benefits. People would not even give to a beggar who had been kicked out of the synagogue. It was to be cut completely off. To give you some idea of how severe this is, keep in mind that it's listed along with being killed. You're gonna be kicked out of the synagogue and you're gonna be killed. It's not like Jesus says you're going to be invited over for coffee and you're going to be killed. These two things are very close in the Jewish mind. To be completely cut off from all all forms of sustenance and all forms of help and all cultural, social, and spiritual life. And this is exactly what we saw the the apostles receive for their faith in Christ. You get some idea, by the way, of the seriousness of this. Do you remember back in chapter 9 we talked about this with the man who was born blind? Do you remember the man born blind and Jesus healed him and then the Pharisees brought him in? And they brought his his family and his mom and dad. And they said, is this your son whom you say was born blind? How is it that he now sees? And mom and dad threw Junior under the bus and said, look, we know he was born blind. This is our son. How he sees, we don't know. Who healed him, we don't know. Those were lies. They knew. But they didn't want to confess Christ openly. Why? Because chapter 9, verse 22 says, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And that's exactly what they did with the young man. He came in. They brought him in. And he schooled these Jews in theology and lessons of history and all of that good stuff. And they got so upset that they unsynagogued him. They kicked him out. And they cut him off from the synagogue. Why? What had that blind man done? All he had done is lived his entire life under the stigma of being blind because of either his his sins or his parents' sins. And now he was hated by the religious leaders. Why? Because he had been healed and he had been healed by Christ. And he could not deny what he knew to be true. That is being hated without a cause. And they kicked him out of the synagogue. And then Jesus found him and revealed himself to him, and he worshipped the Lord Jesus Christ for that. That is how serious it was to be cut off and cut out of the synagogue. Peter and John experienced this. They were persona non grata in their day. The only experience they had in synagogue was being drug in and beaten and cha- and, and uh, threatened and told not to preach anymore in the name of Christ. They were kicked out. They didn't. The early Christians didn't meet in synagogues. They met in the temple daily, and they met in houses. House to house is how they met. That's how they spent their time. Why? Because they didn't go to the synagogue. You say, but Paul went into the synagogue, Yeah, guess what? Only long enough for them to figure out what he was preaching. And then they ran him out on a rail. He was constantly being kicked out of the synagogue. Christians were un They were kicked out. So the the expressions of this in our modern day would be something similar to you being ostracized entirely from your business community, your cultural community, because of the stand you take. And do you understand that this is exactly what is happening, Christians, in our own day, in our own culture? We are being increasingly marginalized because of our position on all kinds of different moral issues and ethical issues and religious issues. Because we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, that is enough to marginalize you in today's postmodern pluralistic society. And because we believe in God's definition of marriage, that is enough to marginalize you in today's postmodern multicultural society. And so Christians are continually being marginalized. Even politics, you realize there was a time in this country 200 years ago When you had to believe in the Bible as the inspired word of God, and you had to profess faith in the triune God revealed in the pages of Scripture to hold any office, you could not be elected dog catcher if you were not an elder in your church, almost. Today, you realize that we're not far away from people saying eventually that if you're a Christian and you believe Scripture is true and you profess faith in the triune God revealed in Scripture, you are too stupid and incompetent to hold public office in this nation. We are a hair's breadth away from that. We're being marginalized. We're being pushed to the outside. They don't want you in academia. They don't want Christians as presidents of of colleges and universities or on faculty at a college or university. They don't want you there. you, You almost can't be a Christian. You almost can't be a president of some Christian universities as a Christian nowadays. That's how bad it has become. That's how bad we're being marginalized. We're pushed to the outskirts. We're going to be, we're going to be cut off from society and culture, as it were. We've already gotten to the point now. Where, and I'm not just trying to get on a, a political rant. This is not a political rant. This is a recognition of what is in the text. We're at a point now where, as a Christian, if you do not want to lend your business, your private property, your time and your talents and your treasure to promote something that you believe to be morally objectionable, that you are labeled a bigot, you're run out of business, you are fined out of business, your property is seized. Why? Because you refuse to affirm every form any form of depravity or wickedness that other people want to force you to celebrate and so now we're being pushed out of that there's going to come a point where Christians are not even able to do business anymore why because we cannot affirm something that god says is an abomination or we cannot affirm something that we believe to be morally objectionable that's the modern example of what the disciples faced and by the way if it happens to us we're not the first and we're not the only, right? As Peter said in First Peter chapter 5, these sufferings are being accomplished by your brethren all over the world. So that's the first example. You will be unsynagogued. Second, more good news, they will, they will kill you thinking that they are offering God's service by doing so. They will kill you thinking that such is service. And the word is used is, is really religious worship or religious service to God. They would kill the apostles. Now, out of the 12 apostles... These 12 men, one of them, Judas, died, and then he was replaced by Matthias. Out of those 12 men, 11 of those 12, as far as we know, were all martyred for their faith. John, the author of this gospel, is the only one that we believe to have lived and died of old age in exile, but not as a martyr. He wasn't killed for his faith. He just died from old age in exile. And even Paul himself was executed for the faith. So this is a description and an accurate one of what the disciples faced for their faith in Christ. And can you think of, in terms of your own New Testament, can you think of an example from the New Testament of somebody who killed Christians in the name of God thinking that they were offering God service? A glaring example would be Saul of Tarsus, right? Acts chapter 8, he was instrumental in having Stephen stoned, illegally arrested and drug out there, and Stephen gave his testimony in Acts chapter 7, and he had Stephen stoned, and it was an illegal trial entirely. And they, they killed Stephen for blasphemy when it wasn't blasphemy at all. And all the charges were supposedly in defense of the truth. And Saul was there, standing there while they put the garments at his feet, and he held them, and he oversaw that whole thing. Acts chapter 8, verse 3 says that he began ravaging the church. The word ravaging there is a word that means to attack and to shred to pieces. It's a very unique word, but it's a very vicious and graphic word that would be used to describe a a wild animal tearing apart a carcass. He began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. What was Paul's motivations? Was he just a bloodthirsty man who liked violence for the sake of violence? No, he wasn't. He describes his motivations in Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, when he says, You've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, in his religion, in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism, beyond many of my contemporaries, among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Saul of Tarsus thought he was offering God service by killing Christians. He was convinced of that. That was his life. He gave himself to that. Why? He thought it was an act of worship to the triune, not triune God. He thought it was an act of worship to his God to kill Christians because of that blasphemer, or at least what he deemed to be a blasphemer, Jesus of Nazareth. And so he killed Christians in the name of God and of offering God's service. It's also happened throughout church history. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on John, reminds us of this, quote, The pages of history tell us what horrible crimes have been committed by the Popish Inquisition. The annals of our own country inform us how our holy reformers were burned at the stake for their religion by men who professed to do all that they did for out, of, out did from zeal for pure Christianity. The persecutions carried on in Spain and Portugal and France and England by Romanists against Protestants are painful examples of the same thing. Jan Hus, John Wycliffe, John Tind- or William Tyndale, uh, John Bunyan, those men were not killed by secularists. They weren't killed by atheists and agnostics. They weren't killed by run-of-the-mill pagans. They were hunted and persecuted and burned at the stake by whom? Religious people doing what they did in the name of pure Christianity. Modern examples. Now I have searched the internet all week long and I cannot come up with a single example of Christians being killed in the name of religious extremists anywhere. And I've looked all over. I've looked at news websites. I've scoured the internet. And you know me. I usually have something to say about everything but I cannot come up with a single example of Christians being killed in the name of God anywhere. Now I know that one of you maybe two of you are thinking, Islam? ISIS? But that just shows how religiously bigoted and Islamophobic you are and how you do not appreciate multicultural diversity, that you would think that that is indeed their motivations. You cannot possibly truly know the motivations of what they do. Now, the fact that they scream Allahu Akbar while they sever the heads of Christians from their bodies, that is no sure indication at all as to what their religious motivations might be what their motivations might be, not religious motivations. See, there's my own Islamophobia coming to the surface there as I think that these are religiously motivated people when in fact they're not. We cannot possibly know the motivations of people who shout Allahu Akbar as they randomly strap explosive onto random people and randomly walk into random Jewish delis Randomly killing people randomly. We can't possibly know this. There's no discernible pattern whatsoever to the 25,000 terrorist attacks that have happened since 9-11. Now, the fact that they've all been committed by one group of people and mostly aimed at another group of people, that's no pattern. You can't see a pattern there at all. Mostly, we might say that it's probably economic. It's because they don't have jobs and universal health care that they do these things. And if they only had jobs, they wouldn't attack people like this. And we all know what this is like, right? Do you remember back in the Reagan, not Reagan administration, the Carter administration when jobs were low and and hard to come by and the long hot days of summer and you had nothing to do, you just dropped explosives to yourself and walked into Jewish delis and killed people and then the Reagan administration came along and jobs were more plentiful and you gave that up for something else, right? You cannot possibly know the motivations of people who do that. So since we do not have any modern examples of people killing Christians in the name of God, we just have to move on to verse 3, which reads, these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Now, I want you to notice how the, the, the motivation and the intent of those who persecute in the name of God is completely opposite of reality. They think that they are offering God service. And what is really happening? They don't know God at all. They're not even in a position to serve God. They do not know the one true God. They do not know His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They are benighted. They are in darkness. And those who kill people in the name of God worship demons. That is the reality. They worship demons. Not only are they not serving God, they do not even know God. They are not rightly related to God in the least. These are not men who worship the same God but have just a little bit of a different way of sort of approaching that same God. These are men who worship demons. That is not the same God that we worship. These are not men who are rightly related to God, but they just need a little bit of information to kind of reform them to where we are at. They do not know God at all. The divide between those who know God and those who do not know God is an infinite divide. And these men are completely on the other side of it, which means that they are benighted, they are in darkness, they love darkness, they hate the light, they don't want to have anything to do with the light, and all they want to do is extinguish the light. And so in the worship of their false god, and in the worship of their idols, and of their demons. They persecute and kill and chase after those who belong to the one true God. They do not know the Father, and they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do we draw from all of this? Let me offer you a couple of things. First of all, this should remind us of just how depraved fallen man is. That we, that anybody, would think of murdering another individual in the name of their God shows you just how far we have fallen in Adam. Just how wicked and depraved the human heart is that is locked in darkness. Second, it ought to remind us, it ought to remind us how thankful and we ought to be and how gracious God has been to reveal to us the one true God and to make us to know Him so that we might be brought to the light and that we might be messengers of the light and that we would be kept from this very same error. Because what separates us from those who want to kill us in the name of God is not that we are smarter or brighter or more able or more gifted or that we have discovered something on our own. What separates us from them is nothing other than the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ, the grace of God that has come to us, that has saved us from that level of darkness and that kind of darkness. You have to be reminded of that and, and be thankful for it. And the third thing, and I would close with this, we need to do some soul searching. If it should come to pass... I don't know that it will. I don't know that it won't. But if it should come to pass that in our own nation, our own time, that we might be called upon to pay the ultimate price, are we willing to do that? Have we resolved already that the glory of God, that faithfulness to him, and obedience to him and his word and the truth is worth all of the sufferings, whatever it might be, that can come to us in this life? And whatever it is that Christ should call upon us to sacrifice or to give or to offer to him, In the name of that, um, are you willing to pay it? Even if it is the ultimate price, are you willing to pay it? Have you already made that resolution? Have you already made that determination? Do, Do you view faithfulness to God as more, better, and a higher value than the applause of men? Which do you treasure most? Now, maybe, maybe we face persecution in our own day. Maybe we don't. Uh, maybe the, the turmoil around us is nothing more than just a bump in the road and an otherwise peaceful existence uh, in our own nation for that will last for another 200 years. I don't know that. Maybe these are the harbingers of something that is horrible yet to come. We don't know that. But we have to ask ourselves, when we read passages of Scripture like this, am I willing to pay that price? Do I view faithfulness to Jesus Christ as greater than the applause of men? And am I willing to pay that ultimate price? By the grace of God... My hope and desire would be that everybody in this room would be able to do that. That everybody would be able to say that I do value that more than anything else. We have to get to a point where we are resolved to say that my faithfulness to Christ, my love for Him, that is my highest aim, that is my greatest good, and that is my single non-negotiable. And then I can say with Paul, we can all say with Paul, that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us and to us. We can change every, we can exchange everything in this kingdom of dirt that we have for what Christ is going to offer to those who are faithful to him. And it is a great exchange. Let's pray. Our father, we thank you for the solemn reminders of scripture, even difficult passages like this that remind us of what it may cost us to follow Christ. And it is my great desire that all of us by your grace would be able to say that you are more precious to us. That Christ is more precious to us than anything that this world has to offer. May we constantly be willing to exchange the applause of men for the favor of you, our great God. We want to honor you. We want to obey you. We want to love you. We pray that all that we have considered here this morning might serve to strengthen us in our resolve to do that very thing, that you will be glorified through us. That is our desire. Keep that as our singular aim and our highest good and our one non-negotiable, to obey and to love you. We trust you. We know that all things are under your sovereign hand and that whatever you have appointed for your people will happen right on time, according to your plan, for our good, for your glory, and for the expansion of your kingdom and your great name. And so we pray that it might be so. Whatever you have determined to be good, may we see it as good, and may we embrace it in loving obedience to you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org.